Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 5, where we continue probing how the first peoples of the region, the San Nikoi, came into contact with the first Tswana and Bantu farmers as they spread out across South Africa 1,000 years ago. The distinction between the eastern and well-watered part of the country, with summer rainfall and good soils, and the more arid western region, with its mainly winter rainfall, is critical to understanding the spread of domesticated grains and livestock across South Africa. Pastoralists who farmed cereals are called agro-pastoralists, and these people preferred the eastern region with its higher rainfall. Sheep and later cattle herding favoured the west initially. This is one of the separation points in South African history, because the western people never did manage to manufacture their own iron implements. They merely bartered these when required. They exchanged iron products from the Tswana and Sutu, as well as the Isikosa, who were able to manufacture iron implements and weapons. The Western peoples included the Khoi and San and manufactured stone implements in the same way their ancestors had done for hundreds of thousands of years. Then the arrival of the first livestock, sheep, can be traced to the western reaches of South Africa around Namaqualand, roughly 100 BC or 2,100 years before the present. In the southern Cape Coast, sheep bones start showing up in the archaeological record 1,900 years ago. About 1,400 years ago, sheep were being herded in the Karoo. Eventually, they could be found all the way along the south coast and southeast coast from Elands Bay to sites known as Diepkloof, Tortoise Cave and Kastilberg on the Atlantic seaboard. Sheep by then were also at the Kelders in the southwest Cape and Boomblas in the interior mountains of the southern Cape. Wild plant residues at Cape sites indicates the herders were combining different foods with their pastoral ways. And at Boomplas Cave, for example, the floor was lined with dung. Sheep were being sheltered inside the caves and overhanging rocks. In the western and southern Cape, all the sites were mainly occupied by people who had no livestock until 1500 years ago. There's still a great deal of work to be done to piece together daily life in these times, but what we know is this. When the first Europeans begin writing about the San, or the Songkwa as they're called, as well as the Khoi, the Khoi Khoi referred to the San as robbers rather than relatives. While we talk about the Khoi San, that's a simplification. The San spoke a completely different language to the Khoi, despite the plethora of cliques in both. There are closer ties linguistically between the San of the Western Cape and the Northern Botswana San than originally between the San and Khoi who lived alongside each other. The earliest settlers and shipwrecked sailors, as well as Portuguese records, refer to the two as quite different, and this difference was identified very early in the written record, as well as the archaeological. As these peoples came into contact with other Africans and Europeans, new products arrived and new types of livestock. The first major change was from sheep to cattle, which appeared in the archaeological record more than 600 years after sheep first arrived in South Africa. The size of herds of cattle only accelerated in the archaeological record a very short time before the first Portuguese explorers arrived in the Cape in the mid-1400s. This is for the west of the country, of course. There is also a direct link between the size of ostrich eggshell beads and livestock. For example, we know that herders made larger beads than hunters. Bead size had become material, a way of collecting value and a metaphor for a lifestyle. The first dogs arrived in South Africa around 2,000 years ago, 
and there is a big difference between hunters and herders and pastoralists when it comes to dogs. The first signs of dogs gnawing on bones we have is from around the birth of Christ, where the fatty and spongy bones of seals have been found in cave sites from that period, chewed up by dogs, we believe. There are no sand paintings of cattle in the Cape at this time, but there are sheep. Handprints begin appearing alongside the sand paintings, and we believe these are likely to have been sprayed on walls by herders, the Khoi, or ancestors of the Khoi. The big question facing historians today when it comes to the period before 1000 AD is how did some of the herders change into pastoralists in the Cape? Remember, pastoralists grow crops and own livestock, whereas herders barter livestock and other commodities for cereals they do not harvest themselves. The western areas of South Africa are characterized by pastures of variable potential. In the Maquiland and the Swartberg Plains south of the Saldana Peninsula, the shale bedrock is rich in nutrients and valuable as grazing land. But further south, between the Ulifons and Bag rivers, sands dominate the land, and the rock is acidic sandstone as well as quartzite bedrock, which is not very good for crops or herding. But there is a more valuable corridor in the Ulifons River Valley, which links attractive grazing areas of the Namaquiland with the Swartland. Further east is the Karoo, which is extremely dry. It's remote from the coastal areas, but it has one secret that ancient people figured out. When rains fall in winter, it can produce extremely rich plant growth, which sheep love. So the patchwork of landscape blocks are like a quilt across the Cape, where people lived as pastoralists before the arrival of the Dutch in the early 1600s, interspersed with blocks where no pastoralists could be found. The record shows that the initial dispersal of sheep and ceramics and pottery grew with a migrating people that transformed some of the hunters they met into hunters with sheep. However, hunter-gatherers further inland had virtually no sheep whatsoever. Then cattle arrived in the Cape, and it looks like these came from the northeast with early Twana and Bantu pastoralists. This migration accelerated, along with the increased size of settlements, around 1,000 years ago. Remember, by this time, people living in the latter part of the first millennium had already been trading constantly with the entrepôts to the east, the Indian Ocean ports, for generations. This trade intensified after 1000 AD, first with Swahili speakers based along the seaboard from modern Mozambique and north all the way along the African coast where Arab and other merchants would ply their trade from Zanzibar through to the Red Sea. The coastlines of East Africa as far south as Madagascar and of West Africa as far south as Sierra Leone were known to the Phoenicians, the Greeks and the Romans. The East African coast had a string of Hindu settlements hundreds of years before the Christian era. Until the 4th century AD, the Sabaean kingdom of southern Arabia controlled the east coast of Africa. At the height of Roman power, a fleet of 120 ships sailed every year to Malabar and Sri Lanka, besides trading down the east coast of Africa, and they exchanged lances, daggers and other iron objects, along with glass, wine and wheat, for ivory, rhino horn, tortoiseshell, palm oil, slaves and gold. Later, when the Portuguese, Dutch and English appeared off the west and east coasts of southern Africa, trading continued with the people inland. There is a link between the growth of political complexity in southern African states and these trading networks, as we can see with later empires such as the Monomotapa and those around Great Zimbabwe. 
Another major historical theme that emerged a thousand years ago was the traceable identity of many groups of people to the present, whereas prior to this time there's not a lot of historiographical and oral history that we can use. It's mainly archaeological. From now on, the detail you'll hear is often backed up by ethnographic storytelling or oral history, as well as documented materials that were produced independently. By 1000 AD, southern Africa was populated by agro-pastoralists, farmers who used the basic crops we heard about previously, sorghum and millet, groundnuts, cow peas, forms of greens, livestock including cattle, but mainly sheep. These people also gathered foods from the wild, what we call feltkos in South Africa, edible plants as well as animals and insects of the plains. Sorghum and millet provided the essential subsistence and the growing dependency on cattle provided milk, meat and power. One of the major changes that took place after 1000 AD in southern Africa was a shift in social, economic and political hierarchy and networks. In the first thousand years AD, settlements and villages were largely self-sufficient. In the second millennium, empires begin to grow. One of the most visible empires has left its legacy on the landscape, the Mapungubwe state at the junction of the Shashe and Limpopo rivers, where ancestral Shona speakers molded clans and tribes into a powerful system. This empire grew large because of trade with the merchants on the eastern seaboard, as well as the deepening trade with central South Africa. Remember, we don't fixate on borders as they now exist. We understand the region based on climate, soil, rainfall, landscape, and people who were able to walk across thousands of miles of landscape, largely unhindered. Mountains and rivers were boundaries, not maps. In the south, Nguni and Sutu, as well as Swana speakers, expanded their power bases in the summer rainfall regions beyond the coastal areas and bushveld, and finally all the way into the highveld. They went from subtropical coastal vegetation into the grasslands of the high plateau with its winter nights where temperatures plunge below freezing. By the time the Europeans arrived, these groups and empires had become quite turbulent and their centralized networks were much more powerful than first realized. Oral histories from this time start to make more sense in terms of chronology. For some listeners, it may be hard to believe that oral history is mined by historians for hidden facts, although a memorized list of events and names is a time-honored tradition in most cultures. Don't forget, Greek philosopher Socrates never wrote down any of his treaties. He memorized them. So too ancient Hebrew texts featuring successions that were orally memorized long before they were written down. Later, archaeological science made more sense of these chronologies. So from the 1300s onwards, Africans were drawn more comprehensively into the external world, both in terms of Arab and East Coast trade and the European sphere of interest. Before this, by 1900 at least, the Limpopo Valley had established hundreds of years of connections to the Indian Ocean trade, which led to complex state-level organization eventually. In this region, as well as the Zimbabwean plateau to the north, the scale of these social shifts developed significantly compared to the early Iron Age societies we heard about last episode. The more complex states to the south had yet to emerge, the Venda, the Sutu, the Twana and Nguni speakers, for example, the incredible historical significance is that these emerged partly because of the arrival of European traders. Between 900 AD and 1290, farming communities near the junction of the Limpopo and Shashi rivers began to scale up their networks and social systems. 
The late Stone Age people, hunter-gatherers in other words, who had not figured out how to work iron yet, were still on the land, sharing the ground with these farmers. They were incorporated into the rituals as the first peoples of South Africa by the Shona ancestors and ancestors of the Nguni. Between 1220 and 1290 AD, a great empire grew in this area called Mapungubwe, which controlled much of present-day northern South Africa, or the Limpopo province as it's known, along with southern Zimbabwe and eastern Botswana. The rise of Mapungubwe was the first example of a class-based social system in South Africa that we know about, anyway. Everyone was definitely not equal. It was also sanctioned by a sacred leadership who mentored the political heavyweights of the time, rather than a simple ranking system. These people were ancestral Shona speakers who sent goods to the eastern Indian Ocean ports and received goods back. The Mapungubwe occupation of the region is described in three periods, which historians call the Zimbabwe tradition. The first was the formative phase, where sacred leadership emerged along with these class traditions. The second grew into what we call Great Zimbabwe, dating between 1290 AD and 1450, and the third, known as the Kami, dating from 1450 until the early part of the 1800s. It all started with farmers moving into the Limpopo Valley around 900 AD, where people known as the Zizu settled along the river in many settlements. There are now burned remains of collapsed huts, cattle dung deposits, and domestic ash dumps, as well as other artifacts of the past buried in these ancient homes. There was no sign of these farmers here before 700 AD. It took 200 years of slow migration before these settlements became extensive. But there are signs of earlier farmers, as we've heard about, where pioneers had been walking into this area with their sorghum and millet farms between 400 and 500 AD. However, their footprint is faint on the landscape compared to the Mapungubwe. Remember too that Zizu is merely a label. We don't actually know what people these were or what they called themselves. Why did these early farmers move into the valley in larger numbers around 900 AD? It's believed the Zizu were responding to climate and rainfall changes as well as these trade opportunities. The Shasha and Limpopo Valley are both marginal areas for crop farming these days and the land is used mainly for livestock or game farming, but that hasn't always been the case. There's been some variation in rainfall here over 2,000 years, and in the early 900s it was wetter and warmer in the Shasha area, which continued all the way until the 1300s. This meant there was enough food and water for settlements to grow larger. Drier and cooler conditions swept the region in the 1300s, and is thought to be one of the causes of the collapse of the Mapungubwe estate, but it's not so simple as usual. Rainfall through these 400 years of Mapungubwe rule was still variable, so what pushed these people into the valleys along the Limpopo? We now think that the motivation was the growing importance of the trade with the Swahili on the southeast coast of Africa. The sudden surge of glass beads found in the Zizu settlements in the valley and to the north and east Zimbabwe points to this trade. We even have an early Mapungubwe village called Schroeder, which is clearly involved in the trade of ivory and other products, and was believed to be the capital of the region between 900 and 1000 AD. We know that at this time, political culture is dominated by the concept of hierarchy, which is similar to today. No two people could occupy the same status or rank, for example. A chief is singular in his or her position as the wealthiest person, with wealth estimated through the number of heads of cattle 
or other goods. Schroeder has thrown up a remarkable sequence of clay figurines of animals and humans, as well as fantastical creatures of the mythology of the time. Metalworking was also concentrated around Schroeder, as we found slag as well as furnace pieces and clay blowpipes, which could have been used in the smelting process. The other product found here is ivory, with evidence of ivory working and underpinned the authority of the local leadership. Swahili written evidence from 800 AD onwards indicates that the East Africans and Arabs found their ivory markets near Safala, and ivory was one of the most sought-after commodities of the ancient world, and the demand grew every century. Gold was also making its way from southern Africa to the East African ports, although we are not sure if it came from the Shashen Limpopo region as early as 980, but within a century, gold was being traded. Glass bead trade was the reciprocal good exchange for ivory, and these beads came from East African ports. Some of the glass beads found in the Limpopo Valley circa 900 have been chemically sourced to Indonesia, and we believe this could point to a really complex trade route pattern way back then. This all means that from 900 AD, the key factor for these farming communities was an ever-tightening nexus with Swahili traders on the East Coast. We have one ceramic shard from the 9th century and one glass bead found near Pietermaritzburg dating to the early Iron Age period, but we have no proof of high-intensity trade with the Zizu settlements from this far south. But that was going to change. By the start of the 11th century, the intensity of trade with the East African coast increased and so did the control and size of Mapungubwe. The identity of the elites changed too with the introduction of a new ceramic style of pottery called Leopard's Kopi, which emerged in the Shashi Limpopo Valley. A new capital emerged as Schroeder's power waned, and the new site linked to this part of Mapungubwe's empire is called K2. We also know that the power of the leadership developed, where by the 11th century, large amounts of exotic goods were being traded through the Limpopo Valley, and that these people were the ancient ancestors of the Shona-speaking people of Zimbabwe today. They migrated into eastern Botswana and lived alongside the Zizu culture for some time, at least into the 13th century. A crucial and central theme in all political development and ambitions of immigrants or migrant communities, the newcomers if you like, is the way they acquire power over those already living in the region. In most cases, historically, there are two main integration techniques. Military force can be used, as well as the more subtle form of political cohesion known as intermarriage. This means the other or first group becomes kin rather than competitor. When the newcomers arrive, they are the minority and cannot immediately usurp the local power. So there is a delicate period to negotiate, which is a kind of dual system. As the newcomers grow in confidence and numbers, they begin to regard the first people in a more negative light. First, the farmers use the hunter-gatherers as rainmakers, as magicians of the felt, if you like. Then they begin manipulating their genealogical history to cast aspersions on the cultural status of those who went before. Humans have this interminable need to retell the story of the past based on the culture of the present or the culture that dominates the present. And so it was 1000 AD, as the leopard copy culture eclipsed the Zizu around the Limpopo Valley. 
The K2 peoples established their new main settlement in this valley around 1080 and it grew in size until it suddenly collapsed 200 years later. By the start of 1100 AD, the central cattle complex pattern had changed at K2, with cattle dung disappearing from the central settlement to be replaced by a large ash midden. This vast fire area was the central feature. The cattle were now moved outside of the center of power. By 1300, the capital moved one kilometer away to what we know as Mapungubwe now. And at Mapungubwe, the leadership isolated themselves on the top of a hill, just like kings in Europe in the Middle Ages. It makes sense. These are strategic positions, after all. Commoners at Mapungubwe lived at the base of the hill to the north and south of the hill, and at the same time, there's more evidence that the leadership linked their power to a capacity to make rain in the ritual sense. We know that there was a climate wobble at about the same time, which may have increased rainmakers' power, thus the link to the chiefs on the top of the hill. Zizu, by the way, still existed as a distinct culture as these new people who were controlling the landscape began to grow. But there's an asymmetry between K2 elites and Zizu commoners through the 11th and 12th centuries. The K2 people removed cattle from the center of power at Mapungubwe to be replaced by trade beads, cloth, ivory, and then gold. A number of other significant changes took place at the same time. First, a settlement pattern emerged that we now call the Zimbabwe culture pattern, where the height of a king's homestead and distance from commoners increases. The elites are growing more powerful, and as they grow more powerful, they remove themselves to an elevated bit of land and further away from the hoi polloi, so to speak. The analogy with European royalty is apt. Think of the role that these castles on mountains played in Europe, visual representations of power, and then that madness of the human psyche, where there is competition between different religions to build their church steeples or mosque minarets higher than each other as some kind of proof of preordained ecclesiastical power. Or indeed, the rush to build the highest structure in the world, which is also a kind of insane desire to reach for the sky and outcompete others. Think of the spies in Dubai, Kuala Lumpur, New York, and so on. Makes one chuckle about the folly of men and women and how similar these United Arab Emirates, Malaysian and American men are to the leopard's copy folks at Mapungubwe. We are all so much the same, us humans. And with that, it's time to end for this week. Next episode, we'll hear more about the fascinating finds at Mapungubwe and how it affected Southern Africa, all the way from the Okavango Delta through down to present-day KwaZulu-Natal. We'll also hear about the increasing importance of that other ancient commodity, gold. So please check out my page, desmondlatham.blog, for notes and maps on this episode. You can also rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination, or send me a direct message on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next week, goodbye.